Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to um, Romans, Romia, Romans chapter 8. Um, this is a longer, longer portion for me to get through this week, so I think we may have to split it into two sections and call this one part one of Romans chapter 8. But as we go into the eighth chapter, there's a lot to be looking at. As Paul addresses the Romans here in the eighth chapter, he begins off by addressing the fact that we need to be free from what? The old man. Free from that indwelling, that indwelling of sin, which really is how we're supposed to be living as these new covenant believers. And then he goes into a few verses later how through Mashiach, through Messiah, we now have that sonship because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. We have that sonship through the Ruach HaKodesh. And as he progresses through the letter, remembering, of course, this is a letter to the Romans, he goes on to tell how we are going to be moved from this suffering, this time of suffering, when everything seems hard-pressing around us, to eventually we have a hope because we're going to be moving into what? Into glory. And that's the hope of the believer, from suffering into glory. And quite honestly, when I look around in the world, I don't understand how so many people can continue on because how do you get through if you don't have the hope of glory, the hope of glory, if this is our lot? So for me, as I progress through the scriptures and progress through this book, I see that hope, that glory. And as we end in the eighth chapter, which most probably will be next week, like I said, part two, we'll move in to see the everlasting love of Yahuwah as it's poured out upon his remnant people. Let's begin in the first verse of chapter 8. Of course, there is then now no. Then now no. Then now no. Then now no. There is then now no condemnation to those in Messiah Yahushua who walk not according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. And I did that deliberately. I wasn't trying to be funny, but I'm trying to draw the emphasis in your attention to then, now, no. Because if we overlook what I'm about to communicate to you, it's right there within the very first verse. The then, now, no is informing you of what? That an historical event has occurred that this huge historical event has occurred and it affects the functional, conditional condemnation in one aspect of the Torah. Then, now, no. Because something happened in the past, the then, it is now changed your whole approach to the Torah so that now there is no condemnation because of the then, which is walking with you now. Then now no. What is that? Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26. Take this book of the law 
and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your Elohim, that it may, may be there as a witness of what? A witness of condemnation. It's a witness of condemnation against you. That was the then you were condemned. But now something has transpired, something so miraculous that it has affected the then that has now come into your very presence by the blood ratification of Yahusha, that it is going to change that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah. This is huge. Believers are no longer under the condemnation of one aspect of the Torah. And that aspect of the Torah that they are no longer under the condemnation of is the book of the law. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that believers are no longer to obey covenant Torah. Heaven forbid. We are. We're supposed to be in the covenant Torah. It's just a proclamation, a proclamation of the shift. We've moved from condemnation to freedom. But what is that freedom? Freedom to lawlessness and paganism and Roman tradition? Heavens forbid. It's freedom to the covenant Torah of Abraham. This is the shift from one aspect of Torah to another aspect of Torah. That's the shift. Two different relationships to two different aspects of Torah. But if you try to lump it into one big Torah bowl of soup, you're not going to see the wood for the trees. It's the division. A person who's truly set on the things of the Spirit will conform with the Torah of Abraham. And then... When? Then you'll truly be free from the condemnation that the book of the law brought in. You'll be true. You'll be free because a historical event, Yahusha's blood ratification, has brought in that change. Or as the writer to the book of Hebrews says, the writer in the book of Hebrews says, that transference has happened. We're no longer Verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, under the condemnation of the book of the law, but we're not abrogating Torah here, we just recognize the change. Look at verse 2. For the law, what law? The law, the law of the Spirit. You have to be careful, because if you have a lawless bent, as Romanism does, the lawless bent is what? Well, I'm not under the Torah I'm in the law of the Spirit, which is code for, I can do whatever I want. Code for whatever I want. For the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yahusha did set me free from the law of the sin of death. 
So what are we looking at, verse 2? The law of sin and death, of course, it's not the whole of the Torah, as we've been taught many times traditionally. Well, the law of sin of death, that's the law. Well, hang on a minute. The law of sin and death isn't the whole Torah, because if that was so, then by the same logic, then the whole of the Torah would have brought only about what? Sin and death. By that logic, and it didn't, did it? It didn't bring about just sin and death because if you adhered, it brought forth life. So what the letter at this point is communicating here is one of two things. Number one, spiritual constants or laws. Look at verse two. The law of the spirit of the life in Messiah Yahushua, did set me free from the law of the sin of death. So we've got these aspects now that are being broken down even even further. And what is being communicated is one of two things. Spiritual constants or laws in verse 2. What we have is a contrasting of two spiritual principles that are at odds with one another. A, the first spiritual constant is this, the view that law, the Greek word nomos, isn't speaking of Torah, but it's actually speaking of a principle or a rule, if you will, in relationship to two spiritual laws that are mentioned in verse 2, or two spiritual constants. Just like you'd have a spiritual law is what? A spiritual constant um, or a natural law. Let's use the natural law. Is a law of gravity. What goes up must cometh down. That's a natural constant in a law, isn't it? The law of gravity. Here we have the law of the spirit. It's a spiritual constant, and it is alive within a person who's accepted Yahushua. That spiritual constant is alive within a person who's accepted Yahushua and been set free from what? What it said in verse 1, the condemnation that came by the book of the law. They're spiritually regenerated, right? And... Because of that, they've received the Holy Spirit. I'll take questions at the end, okay? So here in verse 2, we're looking at there's a principle or a rule to the regenerated person that they are under the law of the Spirit, which isn't an abrogation of Torah. It's showing that a regenerated person is under that principle or under that rule that only a regenerated person can be. Does that make sense? So then the second part, B, the second spiritual constant is this, is once a person sins, then the binding authority of sin will lead to what? Condemnation and death. That's the other spiritual constant. It's right there in verse 2. The second spiritual constant is that sin will lead to condemnation and death. In some, you've got two 
scriptural laws, principles or powers that are, are at work that he's bringing forth in clarity in verse 2 that we have to be aware of. Number two, we've got two functions or functional conditions better of the Torah. Two modes of operation for the Torah. We know we have the book of the covenant and the book of the law. But A, a person is regenerated by the Spirit, right? To covenant in Yahusha. And that then is what? That's the law of the Spirit. And then B, a person that's unregenerate, living in sin, a person living in disobedience, is outside of the covenant. They're outside of the book of the covenant. And they're still then within the law of sin and death, which is what? We see that as the book of the law, where condemnation of the law still stands and resides within their life because they face the judgment of a rebellious people unto death. The law of the spirit of life is either, listen, the Torah of life, that is the ratified covenant, Torah, of course, Hebrews 8, 6, which was brought about by Yahushua, or another interpretation, it's the spiritual law or spiritual constant that's alive within a person who's accepted Yahushua. So which one is it? Well, that's for you to decide. But as you look into the text, you can see that there are different ways to view verse 2. What is it? But then we look at the law of sin and death. It's either a person that's unregenerate, hasn't come to faith, still living in sin and disobedience. Of course, they would be outside of the covenant, and they would still be within the book of the law, and therefore the condemnation of sin, which will bring about death. Or it could be, it's another interpretation, it could be a person in sin under the binding authority of sin, which would lead to ultimate condemnation and death also. So there's different ways to look at verse 2, and that's something that you have to study out. I just bring forth the information and kind of dig it out. But I'm not saying this way is right or that way, but there are different ways to view the text. And that's what I love about the Scripture. But this whole idea that so many of us have swallowed, that the whole of the Torah is done away with, we have to understand that this is really a 19th and early 20th century liberal Christian point of view. It wasn't always so. In fact, John Calvin said this, I would not dare take the law of sin and death to mean the law of God. So where did that idea come from? It's kind of a modern idea. Well, the law of sin and death, that's the law you don't want to be doing. Not, not even John Calvin agreed with that theology. You see, that's a modern Christian liberal thinking. We were up in Portland this week, me and the family, and we were, went past the Episcopalian church. 
and they had the gay pride flag out front. Welcome all. So, liberalism abounds at the sake of becoming lukewarm, and he will then spit thee out. So, we have to be very careful of what's infiltrated into what's commonly called today the church. In neither case, as we look at verse 2, in all honesty, can you justify abrogating the whole of the Torah, can you? You just simply can't. Now let's look at verse 3. For what the law was not able to do, in that it was weak through the flesh, Elohim, his own son, having sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, did condemn the sin in the flesh. So what we understand now through our journey through the Malkitzedek, the Torah, and understanding the dichotomy between the book of the law and the book of the covenant is that the book of the law was not able to bring the people back into a blood-ratified covenant, was it? Never. Never. Because its inception, the book of the law's inception, was because of the weakness of human flesh, was it not? They didn't trust in Yahweh. They didn't know what happened to Moses. They said, make us an idol. Make us a God that will go before us and lead us out of this wilderness. For as of this Moses, we do not know what's happened to him. It was an act of the flesh. They went a-worshipping at the foot of the mountain because of carnality and a lack of faith. But we know now, as we move forward, that Yahweh sent his son, what does it say in verse 3? In the homonia, or the likeness, the Hebrew word temunah, in the likeness of sinful flesh. But we have to be careful from that. Yahweh sent forth his son, homonia, the Greek word, the Hebrew word temunah, likeness of what? Sinful flesh. Meaning, Yahusha came from the flesh, yes, but his flesh was not from the dust. He's 100% Yahuwah, 0% man, cloaked in humanity, but not from humanity's origins, dust. Did he come in the flesh? Of course he came in the flesh. Yah forbid that he didn't come in the flesh. If you say he didn't come in the flesh, you are of the spirit of Mashiach Neged, anti-Messiah. But his flesh did not come from the dust, John chapter 6. His flesh is the heavenly manna provided at the mountain for the covenant people for their provision. That's his flesh. So he's 100% Yahweh, 0% man, cloaked in humanity, but not from humanity's origins. Because the Bible defines a human being as somebody whose flesh has come from the dust. He was cloaked in humanity. This is so important because he came in the likeness of human flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. 
There's a very key point. Look at verse 4. That the righteousness of the law, now we're going to be looking at that term, the righteousness of the law, the Greek word there is dikaiomo to nomo, the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the ruach, the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, the things of the flesh do mind. And those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So the righteousness of the law is the right action brought about by the Torah, is it not? But what kind of Torah are we talking about? It's the right action that's brought about by the Torah. It requires us to look back to the covenant between the pieces because that brought about the right action of Abraham, did it not? And it's fulfilled in us because the death penalty payment has been paid by Yahusha. And this is talking back and hearkening back to the what? The covenant aspect of Torah, which is the spiritual spiritual realm of Torah because it affects the inward man. And Torah really should affect the inward man. It shouldn't just be something for the outward man. It should be for the man of faith, for you and for me. Torah should affect the spiritual man. The law aspect of the Torah, the book of the law, that's going to only affect what? The outward man. Abraham was affected inwardly. That was the book of the covenant. And so now you see it. Now you see it. As you've journeyed down this road further and further, you understand why in the Hebrew roots movement and the messianic movement, there is such an outward display of Torah. Knowledge that puffs up. Dress and attire. It's all outward because the book of the law aspect of Torah appeals to the flesh. It's fleshly and it appeals to the carnal religious man. It's an outward shell to keep people away. But Abraham walked in the inward spiritual Torah, which is the book of the covenant, where a man has to clean the inside of the cup because he cannot be full whitewashed on the outside and full of dead men's bones. That's the Torah of Yahusha. And you can't judge the outward man. You must judge the inward man. And you have to judge yourself. Take the plank out of your own eye, right? Very different. It's the higher calling. The higher calling. Okay, now I'm going to go off on a little bit of a topical rant, because I like to once in a while. I want to talk about something for a moment, and I think it's appropriate right here in this portion of the text in Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. I want to talk about something, because I, I just want to like get this flashlight out and go, <laughs> shine the light on it, Okay. Because then you can make your own decision. Christian dualism. Okay, let's try that in, in the American accent. <laughs> Christian dualism. Okay. Christian dualism. 
is a problem. It's affected you all. It's affected me, and we don't even realize it because we haven't called it out. But I'm calling it out today. How do you say it again? Dualism. Dualism. Christian dualism versus what you and I shall be living in, are living in as we've crossed over, biblical holism. It's your approach to Scripture. We were trained to approach the Scripture with Christian dualism. But Yahuwah, through his Ruach, has trained us to approach the Scripture as biblical holism. So I have to explain that so that you can help other people get to biblical holism and shed the snakeskin, the snakeskin of Christian dualism, okay? Because Christian dualism has to be cast off for us to embrace biblical holism. So what is Christian dualism? It is something that, again, came in the late 19th century and early 20th century. It's a total fabrication whereby only the ethical, listen, only the ethical and the moral instructions in the heart and the mind are what matter, right? External instructions, even the Ten Commandments, they don't matter. That's Christian dualism. And it's infiltrated the communities of faith. It's only the ethical and moral instructions of the heart and mind that matter. It's the law of Christ. Right? Right? Even the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, the name of Yahuwah not being brought to... That doesn't matter. That's a principle. It's no longer a commandment. When did that happen? That is Christian dualism. It's terrifying. Because this demands biblical holism. Yahuwah demands biblical holism. Otherwise, you will be ensnared and deceived. How come? Even when I was, a, and I, like I shared last week and, and the introduction, the I sinner. Remember the I sinner and how Paul was using that to communicate something very important to his audience. How come myself, even myself, when I was a struggling sinner, when I was a struggling sinner, even I, on the way to salvation, how come I could even recognize that the commandments of Yahweh were just, righteous, and holy? Yet, apparently, a converted believer doesn't even recognize that they're righteous and good. What's up with that? That's a travesty, is it not? Our walk of faith should demonstrate itself in concrete actions. It should demonstrate itself in concrete actions, not spiritual concepts and principles, but concrete tangible actions. We don't keep the Torah to be saved, 
But we must be saved to want to keep the Torah, right? And I'm not talking about the book of the law, the outward, like the rabbis, the sages, and the Hebrew roots. I'm talking about the inward Torah, which brings forth the faithful man, like Abraham. That's the book of the covenant, Exodus 19 through 24, and everything from Genesis 1 through to that point. It is by faith. It is by faith that we then produce those good works. You see, the law of Christ is actually dependent upon the Torah. It's not divorced from it. But Christian dualism would have you say that it's actually divorced from it. So really, the problem is threefold. Number one, there's lawlessness that is taught and it abounds, does it not? With paganism and Roman concepts of biblical theology. And I'm not talking Roman like the book of Romans. Greco-Roman concepts of biblical theology lead you to a theology of lawlessness. Number two, you've got Judaism's fabricated 613 commandments on the other side, which is supremacy, speculation, and superstition. And then number three, you have the messianic movement using conjecture to establish what commandments can be legitimately followed in the post-resurrection era, whilst denying the book of the law and the book of the covenant dichotomy that actually reveals, it actually reveals the application of Torah commands in a post-resurrection era without human guesswork and without all the double talk. Yes, we keep the Torah, but we don't do that because we don't have a temple yet and we haven't done this. It's like, do we keep it or don't we? Where's the parameter? Well, we do, but no, we don't do that part. No, no, no. This is what put me off in religion for so many years. You've got this dualistic thought pattern. And it's all morphed up into Christian Zionism, which is a counterfeit and a fabrication in itself. So those three options just aren't good to me. Lawlessness, paganism, and Romanist theology, that ain't working. I don't want to adopt Judaism's fabricated 613 commandments either, which is all about supremacy, speculation, and superstition. But I'm certainly not going to sign up anymore, I did for a while, for conjecture based upon what? In the Messianic movement, it's no different, picking and choosing. Yes, we're Torah, but no, we actually don't keep those commandments because there isn't a temple yet. And um, when there is a temple, where is the commandment that says that you can delay in keeping any of the commandments until the Jews that aren't the Jews can get off their backside in the land of Israel, which isn't biblical Israel, and build a temple? Where's that verse? Show me that verse that says that you can be a hypocrite and double talk. And finally, I'm like, no, I need some boundaries I need some covenant framework to walk within the Bible. And then 
brought forth the revelation of the book of the covenant, book of the law dichotomy. I am no longer at the will of men. I'm at the will of the word with its clear framework. Yes, it's Torah, but it's the Torah of Abraham. This is what believers have to understand because the inability today, the inability of believers to rightly divide the word of Torah is astounding. Astounding to me. They're either chucking it out on one hand or dressing up like Jews and falling for the 613 commandment fallacy or worse, using this 19th century vassal treaty, salt covenant treaty theology, which has then been morphed into temple Zionism, which is basically leading the sheep to the slaughter at the hands of the Illuminati. It's scary. And that's all you've got. And it's all at the hands of men. And that's the scariest thing of all. They mentally realize, I mean, they have to, they mentally realize that some post-resurrection changes were naturally enacted by Yahushua. Whilst, on the other hand, they're arguing for no change in Judaic Torah theology. Well, which is it then? Did something change post-resurrection of Yahushua? Well, yes, yes, of course it did. But then on the other hand, oh, you can't. No, no, that's, we should be doing just what the Jews did. Oh, you mean the Jews that deny Yahushua? We should be doing exactly what they do? Oh, yes, it's a full Judaic approach to Torah. But you just admitted there's got to be some post-resurrection changes with Messiah. Isn't he all in all and above all? But then you're arguing out of the other side of your mouth, no change. And you're then at the mercy of men's minds, imaginations, and superstitions. And suppositions. And that is where it falls for me. That is where it falls for me. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 6. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh, it is an enmity. It's an enemy of Elohim. For to the law of Elohim, it doth not subject itself. For neither is it able to, and those who are in the flesh are not able to please Elohim. So we have to cast off. We have to cast off the old regenerate mind that's opposed to Yahuwah's Torah. And we've now established that that Torah that we're talking about is the book of the covenant. But the old nature, that old man, that old stinking carcass, that wants to drag you back, that wants to bring you back to where you were once. That old man, that old nature is what? It is hostile. It is hostile to what? The world? No, loves the world. It is hostile towards Yahweh. That's what it says right here. And a person who kicks against the covenant of Torah 
the Torah of Yahuwah, is cast by St. Paul as what? As fleshly and carnal. That's what he says. There's no way around it. You can make no bones about it. If you kick against the covenant Torah of Yahuwah, you are fleshly and you are carnal, and you actually make yourself an enemy of Yahuwah. Why? Because you're not subject to his covenant that's found within the Torah. Do you want to be an enemy of Yahuwah? They're unable to please Yahuwah, and their end is what? Death. This is St. Paul. You know, the St. Paul held up by the Catholico Church. This is his view on Torah. How come that wasn't shared? This is his view on Torah. That if you're not in covenant Torah, you are carnal, fleshly, and an enemy of Yahuwah, and that you will get the judgment of death. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. What do you do with that? They must have buzzed right through this one in my Romans road back in the day. <laughs> Enmity against Yahuwah and his Torah equals what? This is a math equation. Enmity against Yahuwah and his Torah equals what? Flesh and death. Simple. Are you a carnal Christian? If you're opposed and an enmity against his Torah, you're carnal, which will bring about... It's the equation. It's the equation of sanctification. If you're sanctified, you will not be doing this. If you are unsanctified, you will meet this math. And you shall know them by their fruitiness. And that doesn't mean that you can hang up the gay pride flag outside of the Episcopal Church. That is not what I said. You shall know them by their fruitiness. No. Don't you wonder why Yahweh's Torah... It took him a while to get that. Don't you wonder why Yahweh's Torah is so offensive to people in their natural fleshly state? Isn't it? If you're in the... Commandments. Right? It is offensive. I'm going to the lobster buffet after this. Commandments. Mess with my lobster. It's because it shows what? It shows their fallenness. It convicts them of the condemnation that's justly reserved for them. That's what it is. Yet for us, on the other side of redemption, the Torah shows us the way to holiness. It helps us create distance. That's what I love about the Torah. It helps me create distance and set up boundaries from the encroaching evil and the old man that wants to walk back into my life. It's like I'm putting up all these walls against the old life. That's what the Torah is. It creates distance from the world, from the carnality, from all of your old habits, from the old man just getting up and walking right back into your life. That's what the Torah does. It protects you from the encroaching evil. Who wouldn't want to be protected from the encroaching evil? 
that old man that wants to walk back in and the world at large that just wants to walk right over you like a steamroller. The Torah is a harbor for holiness. It's an anchor of hope in a what? Port of destruction. I mean, we live in this port of destruction called the world. But I want to be in the harbor of hope with an anchor of holiness. That's what the Torah is. It's a very litmus test, if you ask me, of a life led by the Spirit. But you have got to understand we're talking about the book of the covenant Torah, that spirit. Otherwise, you're going to end up in superstition, 613 commandments, and a bunch of outward what? Play acting. Dress up for Purim, Hanukkah, and everything else. I've got a great tallit I'd love to sell you. It's got about 10 ounces of silver all around the crown. And seats, seats so long you'll trip over them. Come see me if you want it. I'll sell it to you for a lot. A lot of money. <laughs> but if the Ruach HaKodesh, if the Ruach HaKodesh dwells in us, we're no longer in the flesh, but we are in the spirit. In Romans 7.14, it says the law is spiritual. It is. But you've got to rightly divide what kind of law we're talking about. The book of the law certainly isn't spiritual. It's carnal. Added because they transgressed. But the covenant, that is spiritual. The book of the covenant is spiritual. So living in the spirit must include, it must. It must include conformity to Yahweh's Torah if we are truly revived. By the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's communicating. The Torah actually allows us to see something, does it not? And this is the magnificent glory. The Torah allows us to see if we're in alignment alignment with the Creator's will. Doesn't it? Are you in alignment with the Creator? Well, what is your heart? What is your bent towards the Torah, the covenant, and the Spirit? This is really Paul drilling down to a religious people that are getting caught up in the Jewish traditions as the Jews are now starting to come back after the ban, coming back to Rome. They've really got into the whole Judaic, and now there's the Romish influence, and he is literally telling them the truth and clearly and succinctly communicating, hey, this is a litmus test. You can see how your walk is with Yahushua by applying and looking at these principles. Now, in verse 9, Paul communicates here. I love it. I'll read it again. He communicates a very high Christology. Look at verse 9. And ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed, now we have the spirit of Elohim, doth dwell in you. And if anyone hath not the spirit of Messiah, this one is not his. Right there in verse 9, that's high Christology. Very, I mean, we we need to let the Jehovah Witnesses know about verse 9. It's very important. Because look, he uses two terms, nomothio, 
the spirit of Elohim. And then right next to it, he uses what? Numo Christo. Clearly treating Yahusha as Elohim. This one needs to go to the Watchtower publication. Right here. Because this has huge ramifications for our understanding of the view of Messiah in the first century. Not the 19th century, when that false religion came forth. Maybe it was earlier. But it's pretty recent. Yeah, 19th, yeah. No, this tells you the view of Messiah in the first century. Numo Theo and Numo Christo together. High Christology attributed to Yahusha as Elohim. He is readily being portrayed by the apostolic community. Doesn't matter what the cults do, but by the apostolic community as what? The creative force, the revelatory and redemptive power of Elohim, the embodiment of divine power right there in verse 9. Choke on your watchtower with that one right there. But we have to be careful because as truth goes forth, the cults rise up to try and steal and destroy and slaughter the sheep that are in the fold of Israel. The true, true called people are getting distracted here and there with all these side issues. But the Bible has it very clearly laid out for us how to view Yahushua as what? Elohim, with the full divine attribute of power and the creative force right within verse 9. Now verse 10, and if Messiah is in you, the body indeed is dead because of sin, and the spirit is life because of righteousness. So we have the dead body of the first Adam is given life, how? Through the spirit and is transformed by the finished work of the body of the second Adam. It's beautiful. Verse 11. And if the spirit of him who did raise up Yahusha out of the dead doth dwell in you, he who did raise up the Messiah out of the dead shall quicken also your dying bodies through his spirit dwelling in you. Like kind after like kind if we're in Yahusha, right? will follow after him. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, carnality, but to live according to the flesh? No. For if according to the flesh ye do live, you are about to die. And if by the Spirit the deeds of the body ye put to death, ye shall live. So if the Holy Spirit is in fact present within us, then we'll put to death the practices of the flesh. We will. We will put to death the practices of the flesh. Those old habits, those old customs, they've got to be eliminated out of our daily lives, haven't they? We want to get rid of them out of our daily lives. Look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of Elohim, these are the Benai Yahuwah. There's that phrase, the children of Yahuwah, sons of Yahuwah. For ye did not receive a spirit of slavery again to fear, but ye did receive a spirit of adoption, which we cry, Abba, Father. Now surely you're going to ask yourselves, I hope you're thinking this at this point, 
Why? Come on, Paul. Why? Why in verse 14 does Paul play on the major themes of the exodus from Egypt? Why would he do that? Because the major theme of slavery is what? Being set free from slavery, the Jewish mind would think of being set free from Egypt, the exodus. And then when he would use the word adoption, when would the Jewish mind think of being adopted? When were they set free from slavery and adopted? This is the exodus. This is Mount Sinai that he has taken us back to right here. Do you see that? Unarguably. Unarguably. So Paul is intentionally, right here in verse 14, pointing his audience back to the Exodus. He's reminding them what? To reject the spirit of slavery, which has now been identified as the book of the law. Reject the book of the law. Reject that spirit of slavery. And yet, at the same time, he's reminding his audience, you're adopted. Exodus 19 you were adopted. All that Yahweh said, we will do. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are adopted in. Get rid of the slavery, and now you're adopted in. Why go, in verse 14, to such technical lengths, linguistically, to go to such technical lengths of playing on the Exodus theme here in the New Testament if it's got nothing to do with the covenant? Why do that? Why go to such technical lengths of playing on the Exodus theme? theme? Here, right in the New Testament, if it has nothing to do with being freed from the slavery of the book of the law on one hand and freed from the pagan nations on the other, he's trying to communicate them to them. To be free from the book of the law on one hand, yes, but also to be freed from the capture and slavery of the pagan nations just like you were in Egypt. Get rid of their gods and return because with both Jew and Gentile being adopted as Benai Yahweh, they can then return into the covenant by the blood ratification of Yahushua. It transports them right back to Exodus 19 through 24 as covenant right standing citizens. Yes, that is exactly it. You're jumping ahead of me, Anna. <laughs> Crying out loud, I'm not even there yet. But see, she's tracking, at least tracking with me. It is, it says that, Anna, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Why don't we turn there? Because I don't want to riot on my hand. While you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, let me finish up with verse 16. The Spirit himself doth, well, we understand this. I had this conversation last night. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, can we be honest? It's a she. It's not a he. You see, what happens is they take the Spirit, which is feminine in Hebrew, and then by the time it gets over to the Greek, it's like a donkey. It's neuter. Not that the Spirit is a donkey, heaven forbid. Linguistically, right? Difference between the Greek. You understand what I'm communicating. They use the neuter, so then, of course, the monks come along and they're like, well, <laughs> we'll make it a he. But it can't be neuter. So then you would go back with what it is in the Tanakh, which is she. 
And what does it say in Proverbs about the Spirit? Wisdom. She built her house. Because I was trying to communicate the truth of the echad plurality last night as opposed to the triunity, the trinity, or the kingdom of the cults denying Yahushua as Elohim. And I was saying, if we go back to the simplicity of the echad plurality in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and we look at the first letter in the Bible, the bet, we'll see we have a father, a mother, bringing forth a son that then by his blood on the doorposts and the lintels can bring forth the Benai Yahweh, many children. It's a family. It's a family. Right? And we know what the monks have been doing. Okay? So we won't get into that. Yes. Okay, we know what they and the he and the... Uh, so, verse 16. The Spirit herself doth testify with our spirit that we are the Benai Yahuwah, the children of Yahuwah. And if children, we are also heirs, heirs indeed of Elohim and heirs together of Messiah. If indeed we suffer together, that we may also be glorified together. Anna, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, saith this, Wherefore, remember that ye were once the nations in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, and that ye were at that time apart from Messiah, having been alienated. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without Yahweh in the world. But now, in Messiah Yahushua, ye being once far off in slavery now become nigh in the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace, who did make both one, and the middle wall of partition did break down. And the enmity in his flesh, the law of the... Look, it's telling you right now, the law of the commands contained in covenant. Does it say that? No. The law of the commands contained in ordinances, the book of the law, having been done away with, that the two he might create in himself one new man, having making peace, that he might reconcile both into the body of Yahweh through the tree, having slain the enmity clause, having come, he did proclaim the good news, the Bessorah, the gospel, Peace to you, the far off and the nigh, because through him we now have access both in the one spirit unto the Father. Then, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens of the saints. You are the household of Elohim. This is a release from slavery and and a full adoption. And this is how the 14th, 15th, and 16th verse of Romans chapter 8 
finish. Because in the Pauline mind, Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians 2 is used to reacquaint his audience with the Exodus, is it not? To reacquaint and to remind them to reject the spirit of slavery which he's identified as the book of the law. And yet, at the same time, he brilliantly, masterly draws his audience to return to their full adopted covenant status of the book of the covenant Torah in Exodus 19 through chapter 24. They are to what? Live as they are called, not live as they fell. And that is it. Live as you're called to covenant Torah. Don't live as you fell to the book of the law that condemns you. And this right here, I think, is a good place for us to break. And next week, we'll pick up on part two of Romans chapter 8, and we'll dive right into verse 18. Questions, comments, anybody? Romans eight fourteen and 19. Um, they refer, they refer to the term sons of God. Um, it does appear to be that they're believers. Does this contradict the angel theory of the Old Testament and Jude? Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Let's read that again. For as many are as led by the Ruach, the spirit of Elohim, these are the sons of Elohim, the Benai Elohim. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption for whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So the question was, does that contradict the um, Tanakh view of the heavenly Malachim angels? Was that the question? The angel theory of the Old Testament and Jude. Well, the angel theory. How many theories are there <laughs> that bring, people bring forth about angels, Malachim, the sons of Elohim, the Benai Elohim? There are so many theories. But I believe that this, in, in fact, is a teaching unto itself when you're looking at um, the sons of Elohim, the Benai Elohim. So I don't think we have any contradiction here, but I think it would be an in-depth teaching unto itself because there are so many theories about the heavenly Elohim, the fallen Elohim in the Tanakh. And I think what Jude communicates to us is the reality that we need to be aware of that supernatural realm. It's real. It's powerful. And we need to be prepared to engage in the battle. That there are gods other gods, created gods in this realm, in this world, in the nations that have been disinherited, Genesis chapter 11, that are causing and influencing not only politics, people, and places, but we need to be engaged in the battle. And I believe that's what Jude communicates. I don't think Romans chapter 8 verse 14 is causing that to be a problem in our understanding, but causing us to want to go deeper. That's another teaching on itself. Maybe we'll do that on one of the uh, upcoming Shabbats or so. So, Abba, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Benai Yahweh, the children of Yahweh that we are. 
And Abba, we ask for your sovereignty in our congregation here and online. We thank you in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.